Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Trying to get two minutes of uninterrupted talking time. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore. and joining me on the school hangouter. Andy Bramson. Matt Kukum. And guys, great job not interrupting each other as you said your names. Yay. <laughs> We're, of course, referring to the debate that occurred last night. And I'm going to use the word debate very loosely here. Um, <laughs> this was, man, this was rough. Was we bad. had planned this podcast to kind of break down the debate and talk about a couple other issues. We're going to talk about the debate, but in a way very differently from, I think, what we had all maybe hoped to be talking about it. Yep. So I want to, the, the, uh, Matt and Andy gave me permission to start with a story. So I'm going to start with a little, with a quick little story here. And um, this is, this has some history to it, some Bethel history. I uh, started at Bethel in the fall of 2008. So just in time for the uh, Barack Obama, John McCain election. And one of my elder colleagues at that point was the very distinguished uh, Dean of the faculty, uh, G.W. Carlson, who what, uh, taught comparative politics and taught um, Christian nonviolence um, and had served for a dozen years on the St. Paul School Board. And he had organized a debate amongst uh, conservative and liberal students on campus uh, to talk about the two presidential candidates. And he invited me to come and be his sort of partner in asking them questions. So this new green, been there for a couple of months faculty member, shows up with my little typewritten list of questions to ask these students. And we started with the, the Democratic students, the uh, um, college Dems, and they gave an opening statement. And he turned, uh, GW turned to the college Republicans at that point and said, now would you please give your opening statement? And in lieu of an opening statement advocating for McCain or really any policy issues, one of the students who clearly thought they were very clever just began to read verbatim from a, med- from a medical description of how an abortion is conducted and read it for about a minute and a half um, before GW and, and to, a, to a kind of a stunned crowd, but it was very clear what was happening. Uh, GW just got up, walked to the center and stopped the debate in front of everybody and basically said, that was clever. If you try that again, we're done for the night. Would you like to give an actual opening statement? And I wish, uh, GW sadly is, is departed now from her, um, um, but I wish that he had been there last night to support Chris Wallace, uh, to get up on stage, to stop the debate and to say, would you like to try again? Because that's where we were at. Um, mm-hmm. This was not a debate in any meaningful sense of the term debate. This was um, verbal aggression. Um, overlaid and cross-faded between two people who were not able to have a meaningful exchange of ideas. And we in this podcast, generally speaking, uh, strive for nonpartisanship and political analysis. But in the effort to provide political analysis, 
I have to share something that my colleague and friend Jim Bilby shared. Jim is a theologian uh, in our in our BTS department here, and he said, "Imagine this following thought experiment. Imagine Joe Biden was debating George W. Bush, and that was the presidential contest. Would the debate have sounded like it did last night? Clearly, no. They might not have agreed on anything, but they would have actually." Uh, um, had an exchange of ideas and exchange of positions. Right. Imagine the debate occurring between Donald Trump and Barack Obama. Would it have sounded a lot like it did last night? Yes, I think it would have. And so I have to conclude that a great deal of the reason why the debate sounded the way it did was because of the president. Right. I don't. I think Joe Biden is not blameless in this in any way, but I think that there was a pathway where he could have had a more um, distinguished civil debate, and it was not open to him because of the choices the president made. Yep. And we don't have to go far back. I guess. I guess what I want to say, and I'll stop with this. We're not. I'm not, I'm not asking for much. I'm not asking for Lincoln Douglas here, right? I'm not asking for hours of nuanced philosophical discourse. You don't have to go that far back. Go back to 2000. Go back to Bush v. Gore. I still remember significant exchanges in 2000 about the merits of privatizing parts of social security and a view of what compassionate conservatism meant and whether what that meant for Bush and, and what Gore saw as his responsibility in the wake of the Clinton administration. These were meaningful conversations which informed the minds of voters and we have lost that. Yeah. No one feels better about this debate if this right. is what is going to happen for two more debates, it shouldn't happen at all. Yeah. All right. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. I feel <laughs> I don't feel better, um, but I I, uh, I feel a little bit more uh, a little bit cathartic. Guys, is there anything redemptive that about this debate? Because I haven't found it yet. Not much. Um, really. You know, I think we're all a little dumber for having watched this debate. Um, we probably all lost a few brain cells. I mean, so let, let's just face it. Um, when people people tend to ask, you know, after these sort of debates, like who won, who lost? Um, everybody we lost. lost. Uh, we lost. Everybody <laughs> lost. Trump lost. Biden lost. Chris Wallace lost. Mm -hmm. The listeners and viewers lost. And the American people as a whole lost, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, what are, how are we supposed to sort things out in the face of this? And I think... Yeah, there's there's pretty much nothing redemptive about the interchanges that happened. Um, I'm I'm hoping um, that perhaps everyone, you know, including people on both sides of, of the aisle can step back and say, whoa, we need to we need to do something different. Um, and this is indicative of of, you know, where where our country is going, you know, turning into shouting matches and interruptions and insults um, and mudslinging um, and just all around nastiness. And um, and we need to pull ourselves back from the brink. And, and I hope I hope the country can do that, um, you know, but just thinking about what this means sort of politically here on out. Um, you know, I've been telling my class before the debate happened, like the debate's going to be nasty, but it's probably not going to matter very much. People are going to perceive the debate through their own partisan and ideological lenses, if they have any. Um, in the end, you know, Biden looked and sounded relatively more mature and pleasant than Trump. Um, and, um, and so this a lot of weight in that relatively <laughs> is I, I have that written in my notes and it's like underlined. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's underlined. Um, because in a normal context, you know, this wouldn't look good for Biden, but compared to Trump, it, it, you know, it, 
it looks relatively better. And and I guess, you know, putting this in the context of the race is Trump has to, he, he has a gap right now that he needs to make up. He's, you know, seven or eight points behind Biden, you know, six or seven points behind in a number of key battleground states, and he has to make up yep. that gap. Um, and you can't, that gap is probably not due to just simply polling errors. <clears throat> No. Um, that all tend to favor Biden. So he, there's a real gap. It's been there. He's got to narrow it. He has very little time to do that because voting has already started. Um, and, you know, let's face it, you know, the debates are probably one of the last few chances you have to narrow that gap. Um, and while I don't think Biden is going to drastically increase that gap, I don't think people are going to come out in droves to vote for Biden for this. I could be wrong. I think right. what you will see is that this this did not help Trump narrow that gap. Right. Um, and that means in that sense, it is a loss for Trump because this is an opportunity that was, that was missed for him. Now there's two more debates, um, between Biden and Trump. And I hope and pray that they are more productive than what we just had. Trump, you know, can maybe make up some ground there, but, um, he's, he's got a very long way to go in a very short time. Yep. I agree. And I think, you know, this is, I mean, the first one is usually the most important in a lot of ways. Um, if, and especially because voting is already happening, right? I mean, it's, it's already ongoing right now. And so people yep. are going to start voting. Um, already have to start voting. Americans Americans voting. Voted. What's that? Perhaps as many as a million Americans have already yeah, voted. Yeah, right. And, and a lot more will be voting before the October 15th and 22nd um, debates, right? So, you know, opinion is pretty hardened already. It'll continue to harden. It'll continue to get locked in, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think I agree with Matt that this is a big missed opportunity for the president. Um, he came out, I mean, just incredibly aggressive and belligerent and just nasty, right? And it's, um, you know, it's not a good tone. And it's like, like what was interesting to me is like, I, I was kind of scanning my Facebook feed, right? And seeing what my liberal friends and my conservative friends are saying. So I've got, you know, the Trump enthusiasts, I've got the Biden enthusiasts. And, um, and the reaction was interesting, right? Because it's, you know, the Biden people were like, wow, that's terribly nasty. Um, Joe's kind of holding it together. He's relative, like kind of that relatively pleasant, relatively better, right? They're not enthused, right? But they also think like, you know, this is terrible, but it's more the other guy's fault. And it was interesting on the Republican side, like, you know, people who usually find nice things to say about Trump, no matter what, right? Were saying, wow, the president's being really rude. Right. And so even they, I mean, could not find a nice thing to say about it. I mean, they still accused a Biden of lying or things like that. Right. But but it was like, you know, they were just they couldn't find anything positive, really, to say about this. Um, and that suggests that even for Trump, right, who is a norm breaker, who's done all sorts of, you know, you know, things we've talked about on this podcast before. Right. This was crossing new lines. Right. Um, of, of bad. Right. Um, and I think, you know, you think about the 2016 debates between Trump and Clinton. I mean, they were bad. But they were not this level of bad. It wasn't even close to this level of bad. No, it wasn't. Um, yeah. And mean, oh, go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was going to say. I mean, someone pointed out that Trump is was basically a caricature of Trump last night. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and it's like you know it. I mean, Trump. You know, his brand is to be a fighter, right? Yeah. Um, and that plays well with a lot of the country and. Um, and that's a useful strategy up to a point, um, but you can overplay right. that, right? And I think, right. you know, he was, I think his attempt was to try to sort of get under um, Biden's skin, get him to stumble around um, so yes. that he would, you yes. know, make gaffes um, and do do what Biden sometimes does um, and, you know, try to really push him. Um, and, you know, some people were saying that might be the strategy that, that Trump takes um, and there's a right. danger that he overreaches and he did, he overreached. Yep. Um, and Biden didn't flail around, um, you know, 
nearly as much as he has in other contexts, and certainly not as much, I don't think, as Trump wanted. So, right. um, so you know, if, if that was the strategy, it didn't work. Right. I think, it, and I think that's right. I mean, I think Biden did, you know, kind of descend to a level of rhetoric that was, I think, disappointing as sure. well, right? I mean, saying things like, you know, he's a racist, he's a, cl a clown, he's, um, you know, the worst president in American history. I mean, those are the kind of things we just don't, they're not helpful in a debate. They're just not, yeah. right? Even if they're true, they're not helpful. Um, but at the same time, I don't think he's going to get blamed for that, right? Because, precisely because, I mean, like for all the, th the terrible things he said, Trump said far worse things. I mean, just, you know, questioning the kind of basic level of intelligence of Joe Biden, right? Um, acting like he has done nothing in 47 years, right? Um, and and just the stuff about his family. It was just nasty, right? Um, and, and completely disregarding his son, who was, in fact, a war hero and who also died tragically of cancer and acting like he doesn't even know who this person is, right? Like, that's just, you know, that's just a, it's a new level of ugly. I've never seen anything remotely approaching that in a debate. Um, you think, I think back to past, you know, debates I've watched, you know, Bush Gore, Bush Kerry, um, you know, Obama with McCain and then Romney, right? I mean, there was a certain level of respect of the other person, even if you deeply disagreed with their ideas and you treat them as respect with respect, right? And that was, I mean, wholly absent on the part of the president. And I think Biden started with that intention and then that disappeared. I mean, for reasons where, like, I can understand why he was provoked. <laughs> that was that was awful. I suppose I'm inclined to give Biden a little bit less credit than the two of you. I, there was, um, I don't think there's a way that he could have meaningfully just tried to be a normal debater in this contest. No. And yet he did take swings that frankly were beneath him and he shouldn't yeah. have taken. You, yeah. you shouldn't yeah. tell the sitting president of the United States to shut up. Um, right. You shouldn't, right. you shouldn't call him a clown, whether right. you think that or not. And, and you shouldn't, uh, and, and whether or not there, you believe that they're the worst president ever. Um, yeah. I don't know why you, you know, th this debate on the, on this stage is not the place to air that kind of, kind of yeah. conversation. It's just, he had a chance to appear a little bit more presidential um, with a little bit more gravitas, and I think he 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 blew away part of that chance. So yeah. relatively, yes, he did better, but boy, the bar is very very low. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Yeah. And I, I'll just say, um, <laughs> I ended up leaving this contest with um, a fair, a greater reserve of sympathy for Chris Wallace. Um, oh, heart. <laughs> I don't know how you go on from here. I don't know who's moderating the next debate in Utah, but I they just had to have been watching this uh, with the covers pulled up over their eyes, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you conduct a debate. I, I think, because no. uh, here's the thing, everybody on social media was saying, you just have to be able to cut the mics. You have to have one person talking at a time, you cut the other person's mic, and you don't let them talk until the other person has finished their allotted time. Yep. And the problem with that is in as much as that would be sort of gratifying in some way, is that that gives both candidates free reign to say untruthful things in the context of this exchange. And I, I'm not sure that I want to give both candidates two-minute blocks of time to uncontestedly say the kinds of things that they were saying last night. And so, at least, at the very least, the one I don't even call it a silver lining, but maybe like a tin lining of the uh, um, of the event last night was that at the very least, when when set, when patently false things were said, there was an immediate reaction, and several 
dangerously patently false things were said. Donald oh, yeah. Trump continues to make this claim that there is massive voter fraud, that there is this extensive right. campaign to uh, um, disenfranchise his voters, and this right. is not true. And right. it is dangerous for the democracy of our country to continue to make these claims. Yep. Uh, say what you want about his decision. I mean, okay, yeah, I, I could go on, but this is a problem. And having, having yeah. someone be able to correct this as soon as it's said, it needs to happen. I think, I mean, I sort of agree that it is good to correct it. I think there's a way to do that without the, the con continual interrupting. I think you could give them the two minute blocks and then just make sure there's a rebuttal opportunity, right? For yep. those two minutes. And then you maybe leave both mics on for that and let a little more of the crosstalk happen, but at least give them those two minute. I mean, like that's sad about all this, right? Is the campaigns agreed to this, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Joe Biden's which Wallace reminded them multiple times, you all agreed to these rules. These are your rules, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, you know, you're playing a game and you come out and immediately just start breaking the rules. And it's like, what's what's the point of this, right? I mean, like, um, so, you know, I guess I would say like, it might be nice to cut their mics, but you wish that two guys in their seventies could, you know, like agree to play by the rules that they agreed to, right? It's not like these are imposed by some authoritarian force outside themselves. This was their campaign's negotiation and they agreed to it. Um, show some respect for the process. Okay, so let me ask you this. We've all got our, our dudgeon up here, um, but let's <laughs> think strategically about this. this no, 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 I'm serious. Yeah. Are the rules being of, of civil discourse being so flagrantly, I almost said fragrantly, <laughs> flagrantly <laughs> violated by- It's not by a nice Trump fragrance. And, by Trump and, and also Biden, either because there's a strategic value in doing so or because they're not constitutionally capable of restraining themselves probably more towards the latter yes i mean i mean you could imagine i mean what if i mean what if we had we took those two people out and then had two other two other sort of top level people from the democratic party like i don't know just just imagine two other people what if it was even sanders or well, warren important. for example yeah uh, let's say Warren. Um, and then let's just say, um, you know, Trump was defeated in a primary and someone else was up there. Um, even a flamethrower like Ted Cruz. Um, oh, yeah, Marco let's, Ruben. let's go to Ted Cruz. Let's do it. Go to, so Ted Cruz and Warren, and they're both scrappy and they're both yeah. very good on their toes, right? Would you have had, you would have had interruptions and crosstalk and maybe a few low blows, but you, I would be shocked if it would have descended to this level. It would not. Oh, yeah. It has everything it to do have. with the people that's yeah. that are participating. Um, yeah. You know, as a country, we can do better. Um, and <laughs> and you know, the two people running running for office right now, they this is you know, and I, I think it's it's unfair to say that Biden stooped to the same level Trump did. Um, but you know, Biden also has has his pride, um, and you know, he stooped lower than lower than he should have um, by yeah. far. So. Yeah, I, I think this has to do with with the personalities that that were involved. Yeah, and I will just add to that and say, like, I mean, I'm not sure you know, if you have Warren or Sanders on that stage. You know, they might well have been baited just as much as Biden. Right? It's true. Right? Yeah. But I think you know, coming back to the point we raised from Jim Bilby, right? I mean, like, I think, yeah, it's you know, it's why does this happen, right? And it's pretty clear who the instigator is, and it was the president. Yep. I wonder if. Um, if it's completely an explanation that he's at his at his age and his temperament, he's no longer capable of having the kind of civil discourse with someone to whom he is profoundly 
disagrees or even reviles, or whether he's decided that because the vast majority of Americans have already decided strongly who they're going to support, that um, his interest is in disenfranchising the undecided. And by making this process so distasteful that he'd rather just drive down turnout. I mean, obviously, that's what that's what some of the rhetoric behind uh, the balloting is as well. It's right. It's right. designed to limit who, how people vote, and how uh, with what frequency they vote. Right. That or like the crime bill, bringing up you know the Biden crime bill. I mean, it's not about getting African Americans to vote for him in droves, but it's trying to depress the, their turnout for Biden. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you could see the nugget of a strategy there, right, with uh-huh. what, what Trump was doing, and and certainly, I mean, I think you know it makes. I understand why his campaign would want to try to bait Joe Biden into hopefully looking foolish on stage, but it was, I mean, to call it heavy-handed, right, is just uh, feels inadequate, right? Like it was just you got to be more subtle about what you're doing. Right? And it wasn't yeah. even close. I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I get what they were, I think, trying to do, um, but it was it was a disaster. And you know, I, like I watched the news a little bit afterwards, and Chris Christie, they interviewed Chris Christie, who helped Trump to prepare for the debate, and he basically said, "Yeah, he came out too hot." Right? I mean, he was still bashing Biden, of course, but um, but he couldn't really say something nice about Trump's performance. So I mean, it was. I think they wanted him to do something like that, but not nearly quite like that. <laughs> I have nothing else to say about this debate other than um, I am interested in two questions. One, will either side attempt to get rid of the debates? Will either side try to figure out a way to not have the second two debates? Because they're just, they're a travesty. And then the other question I I wonder about is who will course correct in the course of these debates? Will either of them decide that was a that was a that was a bad strategy. We need to we need to shift gears, and um, because that has happened in most debates, right? Um, is that there's a you know uh, Mitt Romney handed it to Barack Obama in their right. first debate, and yeah. Obama came out very differently in the second debate. Yeah. Um, and I just, I it's it's hard for me to imagine um, them striking a different these two candidates striking a different tone, but maybe they'll be pressured to do so, and it'd be interesting to see if that happens. It's possible. I mean, presidential debates, every debate in in the three debate series is a little different and feels a little different. Um, so now we're in weird, unprecedented times and yep. heaven knows what could happen in 2020. But, um, you know, it it seems possible that Trump could, if he wanted to dial it back to instead of being a caricature of Trump, just to be Trump, to be you know a fighter and a scrapper, but right. to sort of pull back. Um, and sort of go after the low hanging fruit um, of, you know, on Biden's record or just yeah. other sorts of things that that could work well for him. Um, and right. and just you know, at least depress, you know, turnout for people who might be considering Biden. So so like I think there is a possibility that Trump could do that. But Trump is notoriously undisciplined. Um, and so yeah. it's just kind of a question of of, you know, whether or not he'll see an advantage in changing tactics um, himself and then making the decision to take a different course, but, but we'll see. Um, I, I really don't think you're going to, I'd be surprised if, um, either candidate, um, including Biden says, Hey, we're going to not do debates anymore. I think it, it just looks weird and it's not yes. to their advantage, um, to do right. that. I mean, you I think if the, pull out, you look like a loser. It right. does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you get really attacked for, for being, you know, Frady cat or, or, or whatever, or was, yep. um, I think, you know, maybe if the next debate is just as bad or worse, you know, you could ostensibly, you know, cancel the last one at that point. I, I suppose that's possible, but I think, I don't think you can do that uh, quite yet. So, and we have a VP debate uh, before then too. So, yeah. um, right. and that's coming up next week. 
Which is hard to see how that does anything other than make people wish that the you know the two VPs were at the top of the ticket. Right? Yeah, probably. They're, they're younger. They're going to be more civil to each other. They they can't not be. I mean, like, frankly, Mike Pence doesn't have it in him to do what Donald Trump did. He would not do that. Um, there's no universe in which he does that, right? And yeah. and so I think and I think Harris is a classically kind of you know classic kind of debater. Um, so I expect that to be a much more civil exchange with actual talk about ideas and records. In other words, what a debate should be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And in some ways, it's probably good that we're going to put a lot more focus and attention on the VP debate because there's probably never been a better chance that a VP becomes the president through non-electoral means. Right. Yeah. Right. It's true. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's get off this topic. I'm demoralized. Let's talk about something far more uplifting. And unifying. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> that came up. That was actually one of the more of the nicer moments in the debate. Was the opening question? It did actually, and that was actually where I think you said, Andy, you still had a little bit of hope. So talk about what kind of hope you had about when when the Supreme Court became the first issue for discussion. Yeah, I mean, like for the first four minutes or so of the debate, right when they, you know, they basically were asked the question about um, kind of whether the president should be allowed to nominate a, a court, um, you know, nominee at, at this point in the process, right? I mean, I thought Trump came out and gave a very solid you know, answer, you know, like I'm president for four years, not three. We have a majority, we can do this. And I'm, you know, I'm going to do my duty. Right. Um, and of course, Biden disagreed and said, you know, it should go to the people, which was the argument the Republicans made in 16. Right. Um, although, frankly, the president had a point on constitutional grounds that he, he does have this power and it is still his term till January 20th. Right. Um, and so I think that that point was well taken. And they actually were both, you know, just addressing the question. <laughs> not interrupting. Um, and that was great. And for four minutes, I thought, wow, this might be okay. And then, <laughs> and then, and then it wasn't, <laughs> and it really became more and more not so, Yeah, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'll look to Matt here. Matt, do you have thoughts on uh, Trump's selection of Amy Coney Barrett? Um, so this is kind of old news. It seems like it's been a year since uh, this announcement was made. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, on Saturday, <laughs> yeah, as, oh gosh, as I mean, as most of you know, um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is a devout Catholic. Um, she's a mother of seven, um, two adopted children from, from Haiti. Um, her youngest biological child is, is special needs, has Down syndrome. Um, she's a law professor at Notre Dame. Um, she was a Trump appointee to the seventh circuit court of appeals, um, which is based out of Chicago. Um, so, um, you know, by, by all standards, she is an excellent pick. Um, yep. she's, uh, very intelligent. She has, you know, a relatively, you know, short sort of track record as, as a judge. Um, right. but what we do know is that she's, she has a stellar mind, um, and she's fairly principled. Um, in her approach to the law, she's probably in keeping with with Scalia's approach um, more than probably any other justice. She clerked for Scalia uh, at one point and uh, said a lot of nice things about him. Um, she's recognized by people on both the left and the right as being brilliant um, and being yeah. a good choice. Um, so, so this is about as good of a choice as you can get. And and Barrett is pretty much as close to a rock star as you can get for a conservative uh, for a conservative legal justice, other than Scalia. Um, mm -hmm. So so yeah, it's it's a stellar pick. Um, it works well for for Trump. Um, it's it's exciting for for his base, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, and I you know even though a lot of a lot of people um, 
you know, sort of Democrats and, and independents don't like the fact that, you know, this, this process seems hypocritical or unfair. Um, you know, even a lot of the moderates, you know, are, you know, going to understand that this is, this is a reasonable choice. Now, the approach from here for Democrats is they, they really, at this point, it doesn't look like they can stop this nomination from going through. Right. Um, we have a couple of Democratic, uh, Republican senators, excuse me, um, who've sort of peeled off and say they don't support this process. That leaves 51 votes. They're probably going to hang together unless something crazy happens, which again, it's 2020, you never know. I'm right. not taking bets, but, um, <laughs> But but yeah, so I think but I think what the Democrats are going to do is they're going to try to basically pin this on pin um, certain sort of policies on Barrett uh, regarding abortion, regarding health care um, to try to you know at least score some sort of political points, give them some things to talk about, even though um, they're probably not going to be able to actually stop her confirmation outright. Right. I, th I agree with that. And I think, um, you know, I think that that's right, that Barrett is a well-qualified choice. She's clearly very smart. She's, in fact, the kind of person you put on the Supreme Court, right? She has that kind of resume. She has that kind of um, intellectual capacity, right? Um, and, you know, in fairer times, right, I mean, this would be actually be much less controversial, although it is still close to the you know, the date of the election, but let's be honest, this would have been controversial in 2018, right? Because people on the left wouldn't like where she is politically, right? Um, or where they perceive her to be politically. Um, and I, you know, it was, it was striking, like watching the, um, you know, right after RBG died, watching the, you know, documentary about her, Notorious RBG, there was a moment in there where, you know, at, or they showed some of her confirmation hearings and, you know, it was Orrin Hatch, I think, who, who said to her, you know what, I disagree with you on a lot of things but you are very well qualified. You are really smart and you absolutely deserve to be on the Supreme court. Right. Which I think is right. I mean, like, you know, Hatch and Hatch and, you know, RBG were miles apart on not many things. He was very conservative Republican from Utah and she was quite a liberal, you know, Democrat from New York. Right. But that was right. I mean, she was very smart. She was well qualified to be on the court. Um, and you know, President Clinton was the president and you get to appoint who you want. Right. Um, and the Senate's job is just to make sure that you're appointing qualified people. Right. Um, and we've gotten away from that, sadly, where it's now about like, do we like this person's politics or their, their view of the law instead of is this person qualified to be on the court? Um, and those are different questions. Right. And so I think by all those measures, you know, Barrett is extremely qualified um, to be on the court. And so in that sense, it makes sense for her to be confirmed, um, although obviously this close to the election is a bit a bit tricky. Yeah, this whole um confirmation is controversial in three lights i think one of which is has is not amy coney barrett's fault at all which right. is um even before trump came into office senate republicans effectively blocked barack obama from filling anton scalia's seat absolutely and merrick garland never got a hearing and he should have um he yeah. should have because of because it's the constitutional order for that to happen Right. Right. In the same way that Trump answered correctly at the beginning of the debate before the wheels fell off, um, <laughs> that he's president for four years and right. he should get a chance to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. That leads us to the second light by which this is controversial, which is Ginsburg is very liberal. Um, Barrett will be very conservative. Interestingly, the, the results I saw said the early analysis of her rulings suggest she won't be the most conservative person on the bench. She'll be to the left of Alito and Thomas, to the right of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Roberts, right? So she's kind of nestled sort of in the middle of the conservative justices yeah. um, in terms of her overall likely um, ideology, ideological orientation. Yeah. Um, but that's but that's the issue, right? Um, the issue with with, with replacing uh, Scalia with Garland was that you were exchanging a conservative justice for a liberal one. The issue here is just the same in inverse. 
Yeah. And then the third issue, of course, is the is how close we are to the election. But if you subscribe right. to the idea that the president is actually president for four years and not three and a right. half, then that becomes irrelevant. Um, right. And Obama should have put Garland on this uh, in, in instead of Gorsuch, yeah. and Trump should be able to replace uh, Ginsburg with who he wants now. And that's right. um, and right. I, yeah, I, but unfortunately, that's that's not how things have panned out. Right. I mean, in a better in a in a better climate, right? Um, that's that's absolutely right. Garland would have gotten a hearing and would be on the Supreme Court. I mean, because the things I just said about, you know, about Barrett and about um, Beginsburg are true of him as well, right? I mean, he's a very well qualified jurist who absolutely is the kind of person that we put on the Supreme Court um, and would have been, I think, a cr very good, you know, good justice from that perspective. Even though Republicans obviously disagree with him um, on, you know, political views. Mm -hmm. And there would be a certain amount of symmetry to things if it had gone that way, right? Yep. Scalia gets replaced with a liberal justice, right. Ginsburg gets replaced with a conservative justice, and yep. it's kind of a wash. Um, yep, absolutely. I mean, I think, say yeah, please. Yeah, and so just kind of pulling back and thinking about this, you know, sort of from a, a constitutional sort of structural point. I mean, so the Constitution is interesting in that it, it basically, the Constitution is a bill of powers, right? It says, yeah. here are the things that the different entities within government can do. Here are the things that the president has the power to do, that Congress has the power to do. doesn't really specify much about um, how those powers are to be exercised or um, what the timetable for that is. So the Constitution says this: the, the president has the power to appoint, you know, people to the judiciary. Right? Uh, the Senate has the role of advice and consent. Um, and beyond that, it doesn't say anything um, about timing. And so, um, you know, so there is no. Let me put it this way: there is no constitutional obligation for the Senate to either confirm or not confirm, right? right. There's not, the Constitution doesn't make, doesn't give obligations. The Constitution grants powers. Now, the, the obligations that, that we do have come from sort of socio-political norms, right? right. Um, and our socio-political norms have been eroding. And so the and so basically what you've seen is you've seen both Democrats and Republicans participating in this sort of um, acceleration of sort of um, power politics um, and just looking purely at what what our side can do under the Constitution. So they're they're yeah, there is no constitutional obligation for them to do anything right to you know to follow a certain right. course, I would say they right. have the power to do that. Um, but the yeah. question is what are the norms that are going to to make, to make this whole system uh, stable and coherent and and possible, right? Without sort of the country fracturing apart, um, and and that's that's the situation that we're in right now. Is both parties for the past you know ten years, even going back to Democrats and how they treated some Republican appointees, all the way back right. with Bork um, and Thomas right. and others. Like we we have seen this this gradual erosion for several decades now, um, and we have not reversed course yet, and that right. is eminently depressing to me. Um, yes. and, and here's the problem guys, here's the problem. Um, there's, there's no end in sight to this. Right. Um, and at some point we're going to have to, we're going to have to pull back from the brink and otherwise you're just going to see this acceleration of, and you notice, you know, Joe Biden dodged questions about whether or not he supports ending the filibuster or packing the courts. I, we don't know really what he thinks on this, right? Maybe he doesn't, but he's certainly not addressing the question. Um, and if Democrats do that, or Democrats say we're going to admit new states to the union, try to get into the Senate, um, and they can say like, "Hey, this is just we're allowed to do this in the Constitution, right?" Yeah. Um, 
yeah, the Constitution says they can do that because the Constitution doesn't say anything about obligations. It says something, it says about powers, right? right? And the Republicans can't come along and say like, well, based on principle, you shouldn't do this because the Republicans have just basically um, reneged right. on acting in a principled way and following norms. And so, mm -hmm. so until both parties come back and sort of retrieve at least some basic sense of, of norms and obligations to the system that really have nothing to do with the Constitution itself per se, the actual text, till we get to that point, um, this this power politics, you know, acceleration is, is keep on going, and, and we're in yeah. trouble. Yeah, right. Because it functionally means we can only get things done when one party kind of holds all the power, right? When they have the House, the Senate, and the presidency, um, and that's often not the case. Um, and um, what are we going to do in those moments, right? right. And so. Um, yeah, I mean, that's why the, you know, the refusal to consider the nomination of Garland, who's a, you know, center left type jurist, very well qualified, was such a bad moment, right? Because, you know, you need to do that and you need to vote on the merits of that nomination um, because that is the president's role to appoint and Senate needs to consider it, right? Um, and the refusal to do that then laid this really, you know, I mean, it's not the beginning of it, as you rightly point out, but it was kind of one more step in this bad direction. Well, gentlemen, I think we need to um, <laughs> what a cheery podcast, right? Put aside put aside the court for now. Um, I think I agree with you all. I did have one quick question actually from Matt. Um, do you think uh, this will be a straight party line vote on her confirmation, or do you think some conservative Democrats might peel off and vote for Barrett? I don't know. It's too too early to tell. I haven't heard any significant rumblings yet. Um, it's possible you could get Joe Manchin or a few others uh, jump, jumping over, but um, but really they don't have to. I mean, sort of if this was if this was um, you know uh, not right before the election, then then maybe. But I think they can just say like, "Hey, this process is unfair. The Republicans are being hypocritical. So on principle, I'm not going to go through with this." Right. So right. I think that's going to. I'd be surprised if you get any Democrats peeling off. You might. Um, and we do know there's a few Republicans um, that will probably peel off. So it won't be straight party line. Um, but it's going to be. It's going to be pretty close to party line. Yeah, I agree. Man Manchin might because, um, especially if he's, if he's thinking of running for re-election in twenty-two, he is up. Um, yeah. He would have a self-interest to to vote yes, um, just based on his constituency. Um, Murkowski said she's open to actually voting. She just doesn't really okay. want the process to happen. So I actually right. think she might come around and vote yes. Yeah, um, and I Murkowski and Collins will ultimately vote for Barrett. They just didn't like the process. Yes, although I think for Collins it might make a difference whether the you know the vote is before or after the election. That's she might point. feel like she has to. I mean, kind of the reverse of the mansion situation, right? She might need to vote no. Um, but it would be weird for her to do that because she voted yes on Kavanaugh, right? And, exactly. and Barrett is honestly a much better candidate overall, I would say, and much better for where Collins is than Kavanaugh was. So that Yeah, I mean, she should just, just vote in an abstentia, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, neither, neither confirm nor reject. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Right. She could do a Murkowski and just abstain, too. Yeah. Yeah. He did last time. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned on that. And gentlemen, uh, there's another story developing, which we had planned to talk about today, which is the fact the New York Times got a hold of roughly two decades of Donald Trump's income tax returns. They've been publishing data from them. It's been a big splash in the news. Joe Biden tried to make some hay of it to not much effect last night in the debates yeah. um, that in 10 of 15 years preceding his presidency, uh, Donald Trump paid no income taxes. 
in a couple of years, I think 2016 and 2017, he paid $750 in income taxes, which incidentally is a lot less than any of the three of us paid in income taxes. Um, and a lot of this is because a number of his business interests and uh, lost more money than they made. And so right. he was able to take those losses and turn them into essentially zero tax bills. Now, there's lots to talk about there. And what we can say at this point is that the, um, we don't have a specific allegation of illegality yet. Right. Um, now, these are very complex tax returns. And I'm sure that whatever the Times has, they're, they're pouring over them very closely to look for evidence of impropriety. The short answer is our law, our tax structure has been configured in such a way that if you have the means to employ the right kinds of tax attorneys and you have the means to claim large losses, you cannot just claim those losses. You can actually spread them out over a period of time. Right. And that allows you to avoid paying taxes in, in these kinds of situations. Um, I don't, I think I'd like to, I think I'd like to just sort of throw this out there, see if you guys have any quick reactions to the importance of this, but then more generally kind of punt on this question, knowing that the Times is probably going to release more information uh, in the coming weeks. We may be end up returning to this conversation. I mean, uh, like, I, like I've been saying all along, most of these things don't matter. I mean, these things can pile up, right, in favor of one candidate or the other and matter in that way. But, I mean, the cake is mostly baked, folks. Um, and I don't I don't think this is going to matter a whole lot. I mean, so if there, you know, so a few things. So, you know, if there is, you know, evidence that he, you know, filed returns in, in not just a sort of a corrupt way, um, but in a legal way, like that's that's a problem. And that could come out and bite sure. him. I mean, the real story here is that Trump is is not the wildly successful businessman that he claims to be. Right. That's the real right. story um, that he's incompetent and he can't yep. run his business as well. And this has been going on for decades. Right. He's a yep. world of lawsuits. Um, so he's you know, he's not successful. And you might say, like, wow, that that's really not in keeping with the Trump brand. So is that really going to hurt him? And I'd say maybe a little bit. But at this point, um, the people that are supporting Trump are supporting him no longer because he's a successful businessman, right? That was that was sort of a big selling point back in um, and a justification for voting for Trump back in 2016, right? Right. But people have right. moved on, and they're, now they're supporting Trump for other reasons, right? They're supporting right. him because you know he you know mostly more closely aligns with them on policy issues, yep. or he's yep. you know fighting for them, right? Or simply because they're being partisan, right? So, yep. so I just don't even though the real story has to do with Trump's, you know, sort of incompetence as a businessman, which if you've been reading about Trump for at all in the past 10 years, you knew he was incompetent, right? Yeah. If you actually sure. been reading, reading in depth, but anyway, right. like, I just don't, I don't think this actually makes, makes a, a whole lot of difference in the end. It might peel off a few people from supporting him. Um, and, and that, that could hurt him because right now what he needs to do is he needs to narrow that gap. Um, and this is, this is not going to help him do that. Right. It, it doesn't help him. I think that's right. And, but I agree. I think it electorally doesn't matter very much. And Matt's right. It fits with, you know, if you're a narrative that if you're paying close attention to Donald Trump and if you thought at all about why he doesn't want to release his tax returns in 2016, which was a big issue back then. Right. Um, this is kind of what we expected. Right. It was yeah. probably true. Um, so it's not surprising. And I think it doesn't change much. Um, that's probably unfortunate, but it is what it is. 
yeah, it, it, we'll, we'll get more as Chris pointed out. Um, yeah. And, you know, this is going to be, there's probably be um, a few, this is going to be an episodic thing. <laughs> We're yep. going to see, <laughs> we're going to see more information come out. And I, I'd be curious, um, you know, I, I don't think Trump is, you know, Trump is, you know, claiming that this is fake news, um, which is, which is kind of weird um, because he could simply he just the debate in 2019, he paid millions in taxes. Yeah. In millions. Yeah. I mean, so he could just simply release his tax returns and then he could just yeah. sue the times or defamation. I mean, he wouldn't right. win, but, but he could, he could release and sue and prove that this is not fake, but, but he hasn't right. Which seems to yeah. indicate that, you know, whatever is there probably isn't going to make him look good. Even if it's not right. like straight up illegal. Correct. Incidentally, I'll just throw out there that, um, and this is absolutely both the political norm, and it's what we should expect and hope for, but also um, very politically timed. Uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden both re released their income tax returns for the uh, Biden, at least for the last 20 years. I'm not sure about Harris. Yeah. Yep. And this is a, this is a norm, you might say, that's gone all the way back to Richard Nixon, actually. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, um, a Republican, because, you know, he was seen as, you know, someone who had some shady dealings. And so he, he released his tax returns. Um, and this is something that every, every candidate uh, since Nixon has done. Yep. Except Trump. Except for Trump. Yes. <laughs> well, guys, we've, um, usually I like to end these uh, podcasts on a high note. And that's not going to come here. Uh, here's, here's, here's my high note. It's a, it's a pretty beautiful fall day out. I have two classes to look forward to later today. Yep. Uh, we will not be talking about this debate in either one of them. Yay. So, Good for um, you. Yeah. So thank and, you we for and we made it into week five of face-to-face -face classes. That's a high yes, note. With zero, yes. zero in cases of COVID in the last 10 days on campus. So yes, indeed. Reason to celebrate. Thanks for listening to us. This is Election Shock Therapy. You can always get in touch with us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our channel. It's channel 3900. We're on Podbean. You can find us on all the major podcast networks. There's a lot of great stuff on the podcast channel, most of which does not involve presidential debates. So listen to Academics with or Avatar with Academics. Listen to uh, Bookish at Bethel. Listen to um, Tweet Victory. Lots of great stuff. Thanks for listening. And when we come back in your podcast feed, we'll have something more inspiring to talk about. Go Royals. Go Royals.